Uh, yes, for, for, for many years. Many years. So Paul uh, was a student of Suzuki Roshi's in the 1960s. And uh, at his recommendation, he went to Japan and uh, honed his uh, skills as a Japanese carpenter, learning, learning those techniques. Uh, he was, he received Dharma transmission from uh, Kenshin Rev. Anderson in 1988 in Tassajara. And uh, I see him as a, a master builder who's built some of the really fine and beautiful structures at Green Gulch in Tassajara and uh, also various places around the Bay Area and around the world. Um, I should say, uh, I, I can't quite remember where we met, either at Green Gulch uh, or Tassajara, but uh, in 1989, Paul uh, led a number of us on a, uh, a journey in a practice period at Rinsawin, Suzuki Roji's temple in, in Japan, and we made life very difficult for him. Uh, and so I'm glad that we're still uh, on good terms. Uh, but just to say, in the last uh, several months, uh, since Paul has been retired and is uh, really digging into his practice, uh, we are really fortunate to have him practicing with us here at Berkeley Zen Center. And I view him as one of my teachers, and I think he's, it's a real treasure that we have him in our community. So welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I, I, and in the, uh, the, the late 80s, after my transmission, and there was a question of what was I going to do, and I have this very, I really liked what I did with Alan, with Alan and his cohorts, the ten of us went to Japan. I really liked doing that because that was a way of making that bridge between Japan and, and America. And, uh, and, I, and I thought I could do a retreat practice half the time and then do a building practice half the time, which is building also something I love very much. Um, but the building practice got a hold of me and ran away with me and pretty soon I didn't have any choice about what to do. I was just building. Um, and I, but my concept was that building was an expression of like right livelihood. So every morning at the, before the, the before the group, before the group of workers started, we were just three or four and then five or six and then it got up to be we got up to be quite a few eventually, but I would I would offer incense and bow and chant to an altar in the shop, and then and then uh, talk to the assembled workers. Just not about Buddhism directly, but mostly about just what what we were doing in the day. <clears throat> and I had I had the the company motto, which was posted on the wall, was. Um, Practice is our product. So if I do instill the idea that how you did things was more important than what you did. Um, pretty much in the, in the midst of economic and, and uh, capitalist world, it was pretty much a failure. <laughs> I did not go over real big. 
and I struggled with it for 30 years and and uh, eventually when I retired from construction just to when it was designed I I I had a property in West Oakland called uh, O2 O2 AA artisans aggregate o, O2 was an oxygen plant and artisans aggregate because the idea was it supposed to be a group of of craftspeople that worked together and hopefully worked with each other and it was a, a symbiotic circle, circular economy. Well, it was a big concept and and, uh, and I was not very well financed. So I'd struggled with it for many years. And then finally, when I got too old to run it myself, I had to, I had to give it up and I had to sell it in order to satisfy some of my uh, partners in that property. So that left me with uh, no no real home um, and no real, left me with nowhere to go and nothing to do, which is probably the best place to be. And uh, so I, I wandered by here. This is, this is uh, I also have an affinity with the, with, with Taigen in, in Chicago. I've spent time there and, and, and working with them and also uh, Bill Kwong up again, Joji. I spent time with them as well. But uh, Berkeley, when I was in high school, I lived at the same this same address, 20, 1927 actually, Stewart Street, which is just two blocks north of here. So this is part of sort of part of my old home. And while Mel was away at Tassahara being Shuso, I took care of the Berkeley Zendo when it was on Dwight Way for um, nine months or more and it was probably the happiest time of my life it was a wonderful experience i never left i never never even went up to telegraph avenue i got one of the parishioners to drive me down had no vehicle and drive me down to the bay and i collected driftwood on the bay and made fences and gates and furniture and weird stuff for the for, for the uh put in a big garden in the back a little workshop in the garage anyway it was it was wonderful. You just opened the zendo every morning. People, all these wonderful people came, and, uh, and then we had room for about four or five people. Not rented rooms there, three or four people. Anyway, um, uh, it was shortly after that that I went back to Tassahara and then on to Japan. And my experience and my experience in Buddhism has been almost all. But Japanese, all my teachers were Japanese. So I had I had Japanese teachers at Tassahara, then I had Japanese teachers in Japan. And then when I came back in 75, 76 from Japan, it was a rude shock because American Zen is a little different than Japanese Zen. And I've been struggling with how to how to bring those two understandings together uh, ever since. And just now feeling like I'm getting some kind of a, of, a, of a grip on them, which is what I wanted to talk about today. Anyway, I consider it a great good fortune that I just happened to wander into Tassahara in 67, just before the opening, the first opening ceremony. I was there for about two weeks before Tangario, a seven day Tangario started. I never sat before. <laughs> it, was a, it was a rude shock. <laughs> anyway, um, and then there was a summer practice period and then two winter practice periods. So I was there for a long time without going anywhere. And it was an amazing, an amazing initial experience. And also meeting with Shubri Suzuki was also a, a great, experience for me but i'm just deeply grateful for 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 his teaching and for his and for that whole experience um <clears throat> and in the beginning in the beginning there was no there was the, the service from the beginning was just the heart sutra and we would chant the heart sutra uh three times in, in Sino-Japanese, in which which is a language that neither Japanese nor Americans understand. But um, 
it's it's the it's the it's the language that it was transmitted to Japan from China in or, or shortly after it was adapted to because the the pronunciation is all Japanese. Um, but we would do it in, 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 in with with the Bokugyo and do it really intensely and and uh, and faster and faster and it, it became a very powerful experience of chanting that chant that's been chanted for at least 800 years um, in, a, in a, an environment that was totally cut off from the rest of the world and where all you heard about was uh, teachings of the teachings of the 7th and 8th century. Um, it was it, it was transporting. It was it was wonderfully transporting. And, and at that time, the Tassar was there was there was no electricity and and no, no there wasn't a, a very uh, rudimentary phone, but it was something emergency only kind of thing. And it was macrobiotic. The food was very very intensely regulated. Um, it was anyway. It's, a, it's an experience that I'm deeply grateful for, and and um, I just I feel very lucky to have happened to just happen into it on that on that just just by chance. And the main thing that Zuhiroshi started teaching that I remember is that they talk about form and emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is form, and emptiness is emptiness. And it's it was. Um, coming at it cold without any background, it was a bit of a challenge to, to understand how to deal how to deal with that concept. But um, and it was not it was talked about that that you shouldn't practice in steps and stages that it, that 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 you should that you that samsara and nirvana were one and that. You should just experience it directly. So, see you know, somebody in your energetic person in their early twenties. This is a lot to take in. Anyway, um, there were some very serious practitioners there. People that were very serious about their practice, and there were some very warm, wonderful people there. And there were some people there that you probably wouldn't ever talk to. If you met them on the street somewhere out in the world, um, it was. But it, we were all, but through the practice, we were brought together with an intensity that was quite wonderful. <clears throat> anyway, the the now later after after many more years of study, I understand the importance of. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, form is form, and emptiness is emptiness. And the as basically stages that you stages that you need to go through is, is part is part of the, our practice, our training to experience all four states. And that's something that um, I think is hard hard to, to understand without the experience of, a, of having some relationship with a teacher. So you're very fortunate here to have Alan here. And then I think there's other members of the community that also act as teachers. I know Lori is one. And to work with them directly because we all have a tendency to ignore certain aspects of form and emptiness. And this, and it's, um, it's not easy. It's not easy to to do without having some relationship with with some kind some kind of a teacher, whether it's a a, a sick child or an invalid parent or or who it might what it might be or or your own personal disabilities. Um, it needs, needs to have something to draw you out of your of your view into a broader into a broader spectrum. So that 
Anyway, the nowadays my interest is mostly in, in working with the the four noble truths, which you know, suffering, and then and then the emptiness of the the, the, the nature of emptiness, or the non-abiding nature of 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 karma, and then the third one of how to of um, how to understand, and that's what most of our teaching is about: is the koans and the and the various sayings and the various teachings and the writings. And it's all about how to understand our true our true nature. But then the fourth is 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 how is a is like an owner's manual for how to be a human being. That's what it's basically is the precepts you chanted them this morning, but. I'm, my feeling now is that our understanding of the precepts in this day and age are stuck in a different are stuck in a different era. They're not. They're not. They need to be brought up to to life the way we experience it now. So the main thing I'm interested in now is the precepts and how to how to understand the precepts. Both how to understand them is what they actually mean in everyday life. Now, taking what's not giving, does that mean that you shouldn't charge interest? Does that mean that you shouldn't make money off of other people? I mean, what does that what does that mean in the economic life of our of our of ourselves and our country? Um, I think there needs to be a paradigm shift in in how we how we inter, how we work as a as a as a society, how we treat other people, how we treat um, people that are different from us. Um, it's, it's, it all, it, it, it's, it, there's, there's much, much needs to be done in coming up with a, with a owner's manual for being a human. And that's sort of what I'm, the main thing I'm interested in these days is thinking more about that and thinking what the precepts actually mean. And then, and then you, then there's the question of how do you understand the precepts? Because even if you, even if you have, you know, even you have some very wonderful precepts, but what happens if you don't? If you break the precepts, what happens? How, how do you understand? How, what is a non-dualistic understanding of the precepts? Now, Suzuki Roshi never talked about precepts when I was there. He did later in his life, apparently. After I, I left about nine months before he died. So I didn't hear him speak at the end. And apparently he did talk about precepts more than, but he didn't talk about precepts that while I was there that I remember and that other people remember. All he said was, don't make two. That's the most important precept. That's the base precept. Don't divide things into two, you and others, good and bad, yes and no. Don't make, don't break, don't break it down to Good guys and bad guys. Uh, that's that's the only that's the basic that's that's the basic precept, which is true, but it needs to be expounded upon and been clarified and and made more visible. And and then the understanding of how to how to understand the precepts about obeying the precepts or not obeying the precepts, how to how to deal with that dualism and make that one. I make that into a non-dualistic understanding is also a great challenge. There's so many good ideas come up and then they get pushed down people's throats until they want to, until they gag and vomit and, and uh, fight back. So it's, it's, it's not, it's not just a matter of having a good idea, it's having, having a good understanding. <clears throat> and then recently here, uh, we've been talking about about the uh, about the steps of practice, how we practice here, and we're talking about gates. And I know you've been in the in the practice period in the Shuso, talking about the gates, the front gate, what's happening, and how the, what the the importance of a front gate. And my understanding of that is that is the that is the the entrance where you make where that you is a is a unstated vow 
as you talked about in your ceremony this morning, it's a vow to, to save all sentient beings, it's a vow to understand, especially a vow to study yourself. That's the, that's what it, that's what my understanding of it anyway. And then once you've entered the gate, then you have to stay and have a meal and sit down and eat and do your every do do your, your eating is like our basic basic physical function. So you have to take care of the body, take care of the of the of the your existence, and practice practice your you're living in the in, your, in the vow, and then and then the the then you then you then you need to then you look, then you then you have room to move into the great light of of, of zazen, and the zazen is the is zazen is basically the the flower adornment sutras Buddha's light. It's um, it's unexplainable, uncomprehendable, beyond 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 knowledge. But it is experience. But you can't experience it. But you cannot describe it. Anyway, that's that's the um, That's, that's the understanding that I'm working with these days. Um, and anybody that's interested in discussing any of these points, I would be happy to talk with them. Thank you for your talk and thank you for participating in helping build this new vegetable garden that we're having through the gate. So we're all entering a new gate now. Um, what I want to hear more about is these four steps. I, I have never heard that before. I don't know, I could have missed some talks along the way. But if you could say anything more today about form is form and emptiness is emptiness and emptiness is form and form is emptiness, because that is what I've wanted to know about since I started practicing here. And it's still not as clear as I wish it would be. So. Uh, I only brought that up because I just wanted to express my understanding that these were important things for practitioners to to understand or to experience. I guess experience is more the better way of putting it. And it's vastly more complex than I would even attempt to get involved in it in less than you know a month long a month of lectures anyway <laughs> it's it's a big deal and, and there's lots to be said and it's lots of things that are not easy to be easy to be said anyway it's 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 um something that to be studied um at some point Hi, uh, I believe that you uh, designed and constructed the uh, altar that's just to your right. Is that right? Well, only partially. I was there. Was one of, one of my one of my colleagues, one of my better students, did the actual perform the actual work, and I was involved with the concept of it of Mount Sumeru superimposed on itself. Which is the this, the shape of, of most of most altars in the last few hundred years anyway? I don't know how far back it goes, but that that sort of a ziggurat or a pyramid imposed on a pyramid <laughs> is is only subtly hinted at here on this altar, but um, that was that was the concept. Yeah, you know, it's. I've always thought it was a very interesting shape, and it looks like if you turned it upside down, it would be either the identical or almost the same. It has this, the same sort of uh, little sloping at the bottom as up at the top edge. Yes, that's that's the that's the Mount Sumeru. It's superimposed on top of itself, uh, uh, turned over. Uh, a mountain on top of itself. Okay, that, 
Yeah, that's interesting because in a recent uh, koan, uh, some people, uh, some of us have been looking at, it talks about bring the lamp to the Buddha hall or something like that, and then bring the gates, the entry gates, and put them on the lantern. <laughs> so it kind of is sort of a puzzling image, but it kind of reminds me of this altar. Maybe uh, that's the same idea. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know how the, the origins, but um, it, it does go back a long ways. Um, but I don't, um, you know, when when they teach things in, in Japan, they don't tell you why. Why? Why is never an important question. They just teach you how. And they teach you how, and then you're supposed to do how and how to, not not why. So um, and you're supposed to do how to until the uh, how disappears. If you just have the two, but uh, so I never. I was just told that was what it was. I was never told why. Yeah. Well, I think it's been functioning without uh, any words all these decades. So thank you. Seems like it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you also have a question from the community room online. Or come to the door here and ask your question. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't even need a microphone. He's got a loud voice. <laughs> we had another question. He's coming. <laughs> 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 hey, Paul. Hi. Um, when we started to emulate around the Zendo, we passed a new gate over here on the west side of the yeah. grounds. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how that gate was created and what's going on on the other side. Okay. Um, so, so I don't know if any, any of you have seen my book about Zen architecture. I don't know that there's a supposedly a copy. I gave several copies to the bookstore here. They're, they are the sale if they his want. Book, Paul's book is for sale. There are four copies for sale after uh, after the lecture out by the book table. It's a fantastic book. Anyway, it, it, the book is the book is basically about the Genjo Koan. Um, and it's a bit the, using the Genjo Koan I think it's the third stanza, or maybe it's the fourth, I forget, um, as a design tool. And and um, so it's, it's the one that goes, you know, to study the way is to study the self. And so so I use so I use that as a design tool. So to study the self is you study the, the environment, the location. You take into account the people, you take into account the weather, you take into account the cardinal points, you take into account the budget, you take into account the time allowed. You have, there's all these different factors are, are, are part of what it is you're doing. And then, and then, then you let the, then you let the varying things come forth and tell you what to do. So, um, it took me a long time to figure out because I didn't understand the, the fences. The fence has been built on top of another fence. Quite, it's quite cleverly, quite cleverly done, but there was an old fence and then somebody came along and built a new fence on top of the old fence and the two are intertwined. So it took me a long time to figure out how that relationship of those two existed and then how to maintain the feeling of the newer fence, which is not that new actually, but it's uh, how to maintain that spirit of that new fence and include a gate in that spirit. So um, that was the process. This was was using using that understanding of the Genjo Cohen. Thank you, Paul. It's right outside the abbot's entrance here. So when you walk by, you can actually see the old gate and a new gate, the old fence and the new gate with the old fence components. It's really beautiful, seamless work. Appreciate it. Hi, Paul, over here. 
It's really a delight to have you here. Thank you for coming and, and working with us here at Berkeley Zen Center. So I, I have maybe a question that has three different aspects to it, and please take any part of it that you want, kind of touched on some of this already. So I'm really interested first in understanding if there's a way in which the Japanese carpentry is reflective of our practice and how uh, you said some aspects of how, how um, you practiced as a Zen practitioner, but I'm wondering how you see the carpentry reflected in our practice. And then I'm also really curious about in your 30 years of having your business, how you found your way with the precepts with them. And you've pointed to there it wasn't easy, but I wonder what, what learnings or what insights you might be able to share for those of us who are still working, trying to establish businesses or find our way. And finally, I thought I had heard that you had a hand in building the Zendo or designing the Zendo. I don't know if some of the joinery for the ceiling is, is your work or not, but you, you're talking about here, the center yes. here? No, Alan was talking about, he was involved. Alan Block, right there. Alan. I, no, I was somewhere else when this happened. I was not, not I had, I, I built the center at Tassahara, but not, not here's, um, I don't, it was happening when I was, I was somewhere else. I did one little roof over, little, little roof over one of the buildings here, I remember, but that was, that was, that was the extent of my, my construction here. Yeah, maybe over the laundry room across the courtyard here. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I, I didn't. I wasn't, wasn't involved here. <clears throat> mostly a green gulch. Mostly I was involved with a green gulch in Tassahara for building. And, uh, and then, well, and you can, you can look, if you look in the book, you'll see some of the other projects, some of them. Uh, the, uh, the, one of the biggest ones is the temple in Switzerland in the Alps in Switzerland for, for Banya Palmer's at Belsentor, uh, which is an interesting story into itself, but not, not, not for now. Anyway, how the, how the carpenter, well, there's, there's a whole class of people in Japan called Shokunin. And the shokunin are people that are totally dedicated to the practice of their craft. Maybe some of you have seen a movie called uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you seen that movie? Mm -hmm. well, Jiro was a, a shokunin, and sushi was his, his practice. And it, it borders on fanatic, fanatical, but it's one-pointed one -pointed concentration. Um, they, one of the projects I worked on in Japan is for this company out by Lake Biwa. And it was a three-story pagoda in the Heian style, which is basically uh, the Tong style from China. And uh, very traditional, but very complicated with many, many layers. And the young man who was in his late 20s, I believe at the time, that laid out the whole thing, he, got the, he swallowed the whole building and, and spit it out in pieces, focused on the whole building, and it's all pre-cut, the whole thing is pre-cut, there's elaborate, multi-multi pieces, thousands of pieces, pre, all pre-cut, to fit together perfectly at the end. And um, he was he was able to do that. He was able to do a number of other sort of amazing physical stunts. But he didn't know how to speak Japanese. He spoke dialect. He was like spoken country dialect that was that he wasn't. He didn't know how to speak like an ordinary Japanese, and um, he had no time for a girlfriend. They sent him to a whorehouse in, in uh, Taiwan twice a year for his uh, sexual uh, for his female encounters. Um, he had he had no idea the. Prime Minister of Japan was, but he, he can swallow a whole pagoda. So it's, I don't know, it's the level of concentration is, is, is almost magical. 
But what that has to do with Zen, I'm not sure. <laughs> in a way, in a way, it's using that it's using that Zazen mind, it's using that Zazen mind to a purpose. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely out there. You have a question from Ron Nestor on. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ron. Um, uh, I watched you and maybe one or two helpers. You built the roof over what's now Hozan's office. Yeah, in front of the office. Yeah. So, uh, and that's that's the work I've seen you do around. I guess the extent of it, yeah. Yeah. But I have I have done a number of gates. The, the one of the more recent gates. I don't know how many of you have been at Tassahara lately. But that that, that the gate the, the thatched roof gate at Tassahara was a gate that I did a few years back, and I did that as a class. There I can't. I, there was. There was no money in the budget to build it, so or very little money in the budget to build it. So I did it as a class, and people signed up for the class, and we met like I think in this case we met once a week, and we started making all. First, we discussed what a gate is, what the, what, what what is a gate. We discussed that for a few for a couple of weeks, and then we made models of gates, and then we started making. Then we came up with a design. And we got the pieces of wood together and the stones and everything. We started making the gate. And we did the vast majority of the work in Oakland in my shop in Oakland. And then we took it to Tassahara and went down for two weeks and finished it down there on site. So that was, that was um, one of the last gates. Um, but I've done gates in, in the heart of Tokyo with a that are from the Sun period gates that are quite elaborate with rigor. Radio rafters. Um, I, I did a gate in the Berkeley Arboretum. You know, and if you go walking in the Berkeley Arboretum up in, the, up in Strawberry Canyon, in the Japanese section, there's a path that reads through just in the Japanese section, there's a little, a little walkthrough gate that I did maybe, I don't know, 30 years ago, a long time ago. And it still, still looks great. I'm very proud of that. That's maybe my favorite gate of all. Um, Anyway, um, gates are nice, concise, nice, concise structures that you can experience all of the architectural. And so they're like a poem. They're like a, like an architectural poem. You can experience all with all understated and, in, and indirectly stated. When we were in Kyoto with you, um, you have you got us access to some of the temples in Daitokuji. Is that in Daitokuji? Yeah. Yes, that's where I, that's and, where I studied when I was there. Yeah. Right, and again, what I remember is walking around these temples, uh, walking on the the Gaitan, uh and you would point to a board and say, "I put in that board." Oh yeah, yeah. That was that was that was that was uh, uh, what was that was um, Shinjuan. Yeah, that was yeah. So aside from you know, there's the swallowing a whole pagoda at once, and there is triggering the position of one board. Yeah, that was that was an impression on me. That was that was a great honor to be to be that, that that's a very special temple. And the teacher, the the priest there is an incredible person. I mean, he just radiates the light. He's and and and, and it's interesting. I've never I've never figured out how to do it myself. But you know, you we want to take a photograph, right? And so it, and so we were there with with a number of people. We want to take a photograph. And all of a sudden, he turns on the light, and then you can see it in the photograph. It's like, oh, there's a moon in the room. I mean, it's like, it was quite astounding. Um, yeah, he was, he was good. He taught me, 
He taught me three, three, five, seven. That was what he taught me. That's the sort of a, a, a numerical sequence for design, for uh, Japanese design. And uh, he was very, uh, he was very encouraging. I, I liked working there. We were, we were just a maintenance crew fixing re repairs, just doing repairs. Nick Robinson has a question online. Hi, thanks for your talk. I have a question about uh, don't make two. Um, it seems to me that in the in the context of uh, Zen practice in a community uh, with a teacher, uh, it's uh, uh, and, and continuous zazen practice. It's 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 easier to understand don't make two and to practice that. Um, much harder in. Uh, one's livelihood in art practice in the world. Uh, wh what can we, can, is there anything we can take from our experience in uh, Sazen practice to help us to not make two in the world? Well, I think, I mean, every, everything you do is an opportunity. Um, when, you, when you meet somebody for the first time, or you meet somebody for the these the, the, the umpteenth time, is is are they? Do you feel do you feel comfortable with them? Do you feel on par with them? Do you feel like you're they're they're your your siblings, your 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 fellow humans? I mean, people people are very. Other people are very quick to understand whether you see somebody as good or bad or inferior or 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 or, or superior or you know, your judgment of other people when you when you meet them. And it's it's some people are very sensitive to it, some people aren't so sensitive to it, but it, but everybody gets that. So what kind of a vibe do you give off when you meet somebody? If you know, do you have are you uh, that's are you is it one of just being there with them, or is it one of thinking, well, what can I get from this person, or, or, or what am I, why am I wasting my time with this person, or, or you know, it's, it's an opportunity. Every chance we get, we have an opportunity. I and mean, when you see a piece of garbage on the ground, do you think, oh, some, some, some stupid person dropped that on the ground? Or do you think, oh, that's my garbage, I'll pick it up and take it away with me? Um, that's how you don't make two. Thank you, Paul. Um, many of us never had the good fortune of meeting Suzuki Roshi, and I was wondering if you could tell a little story or an observation that you might remember of your time at Tassajara and what it was that, um, you know, moved you, touched you about uh, working with him as your teacher. Well, Many things, of course. Um, one of the one of the first lessons that I learned was that when we first started out, we did the the zendo, the where they were the old zendo, the, the stone zendo, the burned, was still the uh, still part of still part of the old resort. It was the bar actually, and where the altar was, there was a big fireplace, big or open fireplace. And anyway. We we didn't we didn't use it as a zendo. I forget the details, but we we used the, the two story building on the edge of the creek there. That little two story building has rooms upstairs and a big room downstairs, and that had been the previous owner's private quarters. And we used that downstairs room as a zendo, and we would and the kitchen was just a little shack on the deck there because the kitchen had been condemned and torn down. But anyway. So we would have breakfast in there, eating orioki, and just with uh, three bowls, just you know, simple three bowls orioki. And we would and they would have a cereal in the morning, and they would put out uh, gamasio, and they'd put out milk and honey for the cereal. And one morning, the chef, the cooks, forgot to put out the milk and honey. <laughs> 
passes me through and she's stopped in the middle of breakfast. He said, oh, I'm so glad that you realized that the taste of oatmeal is so much better just by itself. The true taste of oatmeal is so much better just by itself. You don't really need to put milk and honey on it. I'm so glad that you figured that out, that you found that out. Well, of course, it was a mistake on our part, but we never had milk and honey again. That was the end of that. So he, he was very mild in his teaching. He, didn't, he, he never shouted or, or yelled. But um, he found opportunities like that to challenge our, our to, to, to challenge our thinking about things. Um, that was this very very skillful the way he, he was very skillful and very. But he was constantly looking for ways in order to do that. How we put our shoes on the shoe rack was a, was always very important. The broom standing up is one a classic is classic one. You know, always stand the broom up on its end because the broom can't do it for itself. And um, but he always felt that his teaching was too mild, too too gentle. But I think for us, you know, young sixty wild ass kids, it was probably the perfect the perfect thing. Um, he brought in Tatsugami Roshi later to to be to be strict, but we we wore him down pretty quick. Anyway, um, but I do remember also, also another thing was that we would, at, we would sit, so I was in at, at before noon during the practice periods, and, and then we'd go out and, we'd, and we would hit the bell in the Han for lunch, and somebody had to, we had a, it was a position that there was somebody was chosen to do that, and this person that was quite a good friend of mine. There's a, a Danish carpenter that I mean, he and I worked together a lot. Niels Holmes. Mm-hmm. It was his his role to to be that. I forget the name of the position now. It's been so long. Anyway, and there, there was a big clock on the Zendo wall right up on that right up above him. And Suzuki or she was sitting on the top right above him, also sitting up on a raised platform at the end of the Zendo. This is the old Zendo, and. At some point, Niels reared back so we could see the clock that was up there on the wall. Then went to the clock, and Suzuki Roshi, because you were carrying the stick, we'd be, we'd be here to Kiyosaku in those days. Um, you could see that he would sit there and he looked like he was asleep. I mean, he was, he, did, he was not, he was not exactly nodding, but he, he did not look like he was fully awake. But as soon as Niels reared back, he was up in a flash. Down and hit him with a stick <laughs> because he was looking at the clock. Um, and he would come around every once in a while, he would just come around and said, Oh, hit everybody. Um, I'm something, probably something that he experienced in his own training. Um, and it was very, very refreshing, shall we say. But um, his way was very gentle. And he'd like, he did a lot of, he liked to arrange stones in his yard. That's what he did during that period. And he, uh, I also remember one time we had visiting Rinzai teachers who were visiting, uh, So and Roshi. I don't remember, I don't remember not exactly who it was, but some famous Rinzai teacher was visiting. And, and he had, he had, had taken a little teaching, his teaching stick and he broke it over one of his students. This man, oh God, what was his name? No, 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 but Suzuki Roshi had broken the stick over Phil, Phil, Philip, Phil Wilson. Wilson, Phil Wilson, who was, uh, that's a whole other story I want to get into who <laughs> Phil Wilson was, but anyway. And, and Phil was like, yes, yes, sensei, yes, sensei, quack, 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 yes, sensei, yes, sensei. And he was incorrigible. He was thought he was mentally not all there, but anyway. Um, but Sweekers was working with him, and he ended up breaking the oak stick on Philip. So then, so then, some months later, um, some months later, with his visiting Rinzai teacher was there, and he Sweekers came to him with a broken stick. He says, "I want you to." St- Put this back together again, but not too not too skillfully. I want I want them to see the break. I want them to know we have tough practice here too. And, and he gave us a present to the teacher, to the visiting Rinzai teacher. 
So it's a little, it's a little insights into his, into his, into his, into his inner thinkings. Um, so those ways that you described that he challenged you, um, do you have the faith that, um, how will that meet Americans and as we go forward? Do you have the faith that his teachings will continue to inform Americans and? Well, that's a whole other conversation, another lecture. Maybe I'd be happy to talk about the 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 the, the, the connection between Japanese Zen and, and American Zen. Um, I mean, Japanese Zen is basically from the neck down, and American Zen is from the neck up. So they're they're two they're two are, are kind of disjointed. But but I think that the my 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 understanding and my my I my my feeling these days is that the two are joined at the point of vow. Like you vowed this morning, you vowed this morning, the ceremony this morning, is, is the vow to save all sentient beings is the joining point between the two ways of practicing. And that's, that's the most important part, is that vow. Um, Thank you. And maybe where we have to end it. are numberless. I bow Thank you.